Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy I mean, everything can play a part in it. You know, um, can't just say like we was, we was rusty. You know, it was windy. It was cold as heck out there. Um, but everything played a factor. But, you know, the, but the thing I'm proud of, our team is, you know, we came out second half and we did what we were supposed to do. Remember that guy, the show we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players, past and present. Hey there, folks. Me, one of your hosts, James. And it has been a long two and a half years, but we are finally, as a show, hosting our first AFC championship game. Diaz back with you once again. We had an NFC championship game last year. Thank God the birds are keeping the tradition going in the AFC. We do have a very special guest, though. He is the third bird. Please introduce yourself. It's me, Larry Bird. The third <laughs> bird. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Larry. How had everybody's heard about the bird? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. Well, no, let's not leave it that because I'll lead off making memories this week because we're going to talk about the goddamn birds. If you all did not watch the divisional round, the Ravens beat the Houston Texans. Real quick, we mentioned this a little bit ago when I was, you know, being miserable about the end of the Orioles season. We had not seen a playoff win in the city of Baltimore since October 2nd, 2014 until this past Sunday, I guess two Sundays from the time you're listening to this. There were... 3,396 days between wins, but God damn it, our long national nightmare is over, and Lamar Jackson and the Ravens beat the shit out of the Houston Texans. Like, I was telling people, yo, take the money with Houston minus 9.5 all day, and I lost some people some money, and that's why I don't gamble. And I just need to point out, they especially shouldn't listen to you about gambling, because it was plus 9.5. There we go. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I don't gamble. But that's okay. I don't need to gamble because I have the single most talented player in the history of the NFL on my very favorite team. And it's a good team. It's a good franchise. The Ravens are a quality organization. And yet, despite having already gotten three people elected to the Hall of Fame in their brief history, they are going to host the franchise's first ever AFC Championship game. They hosted yesterday. This comes out. Franchise's first AFC Championship game against the Kansas City Chiefs. We're doing this one for the 2014 Orioles, by the way. We are avenging the loss to the Kansas City Royals by fucking the Chiefs up yesterday when we did beat them. I'm going to put some sound effect after that. I don't know which, but I have to say something. So, yeah, we won. So, this is the first AFC Championship game in Ravens history. It is only the second ever. I only just now am getting a second nickel for the number of AFC Championship games hosted in the city of Baltimore. 1971. The first ever AFC Championship game was held in Baltimore. And now we have waited, you know, at this point in time, literally as long as someone could possibly wait for a second one to be hosted in our city. Uh, and if you're rooting for the chiefs, honestly, like, I don't know what the fuck is wrong with you. You are an absolute mark. I'm just going to throw a couple things real quick. Uh, fuck the Kansas city chiefs, 
Fuck their racist ass stadium. Fuck their racist ass chants said by their racist ass fans. Fuck their barbecue. Andy Nelson, former Baltimore cult, 30 minutes north of Baltimore, Maryland. His worst barbecue he's ever made is better than any of the fucking garbage you can get Kansas City. Taylor Swift, you're fine. You're absolutely fine. I got no problems with you. We're not listening to any of your music this week, but fuck everything else about the Kansas City Chiefs. Man, like the culture needs the blackest possible Super Bowl in Baltimore, Detroit. The culture needs a blue collar nose to the grindstone shit. None of this Silicon Valley bullshit with the Niners. None of this fucking new dynasty, but oh, we want to cry. I have had to hear Kansas City fans talk about how no one believes in the Chiefs. It's the most Charlie Brown had hose shit I've heard in my entire life. I, I, this, the universe needs the Baltimore Ravens to have won this fucking game yesterday. As the literal defending Super Bowl champions, they are able to claim underdog status. It is incredible. In their sixth straight AFC championship game, Patrick Mahomes, as a starter, has never missed an AFC championship game. And I got people out here, people in my life that I care about, that are near and dear to my heart, telling me that no one believes in fucking Patrick Mahomes. Get the fuck out of here. Go Birds. Fuck KC. Can't wait for the Super Bowl. The only thing I'll say is I would like Ravens Detroit. I also would like Ravens Niners because it's full circle of one of my favorite neutral viewing moments of all time. Watching James celebrate and then run out onto the track. And I would have to find a way to recreate that uh, this year. Come down to Baltimore, man. I will run whatever fucking distance you want if the Ravens win the Super Bowl again. I will get on my bike after they win and beat you back to Philadelphia if I have to. I mean, I think being in Baltimore, if they win, it, you wouldn't want to go anywhere else except maybe just running down the street with all of the Ravens fans. It is undeniably the single biggest football game ever held in the city of Baltimore. It, like, there is no question. This is the single biggest football game that has ever taken place in this city. And like I said, the the Ravens are a good team. I'm not acting like the Ravens have made me suffer as a fan. Really in no context have they. But the city of Baltimore suffers a whole lot of other things. The the city is so electric right now that we had a massive underground fire last night that knocked out power for over a thousand people because we cannot contain the birds' energy. Go birds. It's beautiful. It will be birds-lions. It's going to be birds-lions. Let's not act like it's going to be anything else. It's been making memories for me. So I had to find a new favorite soccer team to support uh, because I was starting a career mode in the AFC. So I did research and the team that I settled on was AFC Wimbledon. In my research, I learned a lot about the history of AFC Wimbledon, soccer in Wimbledon. So just allow me briefly to go over the history of my new favorite team, AFC Wimbledon. They're founded in 1889. They're one of the oldest teams in all of England. And they usually play like non-league, semi-pro football. They're not in the, in the, the classic professional pyramid, if you will. But they're very well known on the amateur level. They win the FA Amateur Cup in 1963. And they start becoming dominant forces in their local league, which is essentially the equivalent of like a bar league at this point. They start dominating it so much that... It's not that they're promoted to the fourth division. They are literally elected. Like the the English FA has taken notice and has chosen this team 
to join their official pyramid. They earned promotion to make it all the way up to the Premier League. So this team that just 10 years ago was just a bunch of dudes slamming some beers and going to play some soccer are now playing in the Premier League. Not the Premier League, the first division, as it is known at the time. In the mid to late 80s, and this is the team that is most near and dear to my heart, they come to be known as the Crazy Gang because they engage in a lot of off-field shenanigans. There are people that are tied to the top of cars and driven around. Team members, let's be very clear. This is only ever teammate on teammate. But uh, there's a lot of roughhousing and shenanigans in the locker room, you could say. And on the pitch, the best analogy I can make is like they're basically the Broad Street bullies of English football. Like That's what I thought you were building towards. <laughs> they're coming in, elbows high, cleats up. Every challenge is a physical one. Gary Lineker famously called them anti-football. Um, it's not the way the game's meant to be played, but... Game's gone. The game's gone, and, and it, but to my eyes, I, I see all this and I say, the game's back. The game is fully back, and their crowning achievement, 1988, FC Wimbledon wins the FA Cup against defending champions Liverpool. They, they, they saved a penalty during the game. It's incredible. They became... I believe the only team in the history of English football to win both an FA Amateur Cup and an FA Cup, classically. They hated the Premier League about like 15, 20 years, but eventually they finally get relegated down in 2000, 2001. And it's important to remember like the financial roots of this team is still a bar league. They got really used to that Premier League money coming in. It was the Premier League by this point that they were relegated. And losing that money really affected the team. They had previously flirted with the idea of relocation, which if you know anything about English football or really soccer anywhere in Europe, the whole point is that the teams are associated with the towns. It's the whole thing. It's why everybody loves it. It's why they're named that way. Exactly. Literally. It's yeah. FC Wimbledon. It goes to a vote. The FA has an quote unquote independent panel that is put together. It is, quote-unquote, approved by a, quote-unquote, two-to-one vote because it's always a two-to-one vote. It's never 3-0. It's always 2-1. You need your little bit of plausible deniability. And FC Wimbledon relocates to Milton Keynes, which is about 60 miles north of their previous headquarters. In response, the FC Wimbledon fan base as a whole revolts. They say, we are not following this team 60 miles north. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to pull our own money together and we're going to start a new team and we're going to call them AFC Wimbledon. So for a few years, we have AFC Wimbledon and we have FC Wimbledon. But FC Wimbledon, at this point, they are now like, you know, they've been disavowed by their fan base. Everybody in the country hates them because of what they now represent of this most basic contract of fandom being violated. And so finally, after two years, FC Wimbledon rebranded to MK Dons. And MK Dons has always been, you know, the same legacy as Wimbledon. They've been hanging around, you know, third tier, fourth tier. But AFC Wimbledon, which is the true spirit of the original Wimbledon FC, they start off in the ninth tier. But because they have this massive fan support already built in, a lot more financial backing at that level than any other team is going to have, they just keep climbing the table. Today, 
They sit in League Two at the same tier as their bastard club, MK Dons. And what I really need to give credit to is the pettiness that they have about this. The FA had to call a meeting to bring them both together to try to resolve their differences because any time that MK Dons went to AFC Wimbledon for an away game, they would not acknowledge their name on the scoreboard at all or in the official day program. It just said AFC Wimbledon versus away. Yeah. It's still the Indianapolis professional football team when they travel to M&T Bank Stadium. I respect the shit out of this. Exactly. Exactly. No, it is, it is exactly in that same vein as they do it. Um, and basically, they finally reach an agreement where it was like, look, on all official signage within the arena, it needs to say MK Dons. Whatever you want to do with your programs or with your social media, go for it. So, yeah, like their social media does not acknowledge their existence whatsoever. And that actually just happened this past weekend, perfectly enough. They played MK Dons. They did lose 3-1. It's a tough loss, but it looks like both teams are kind of going to be in that like mid-table where they're not going to in danger of getting relegated. They're probably not going to be promoted. So, you know, I'm looking forward to another season next year. We're going to support the Wombles, as they are known. That's the other thing that I wanted to mention about this. The Wombles creator, like, gave FC Wimbledon their blessing to use the Wombles as, like, official, you know, team mascots and whatnot. The second they went north, they said, fuck that, we're revoking our privilege. You cannot use the Wombles as your name anymore. And for Uh, those that are not privy to the screenshots in all of our group chats, the Wombles is a BBC children's show that looks very, very similar to Fraggle Rock. It's incredible. I love the the character design, and I love AFC Wimbledon. They're they're my new club. They have an incredible history because FC Wimbledon's history is their history. Let's be real. So I love the legacy. As Sir Bobby Robson once said, what is a club in any case? It's not the executives. It's not the corporate sponsorships. It's the, it's the fans is what it comes down to. And the fans decided that AFC Wimbledon is the true Wimbledon. I must respect the fans. I must guide AFC Wimbledon to the Premier League in my FIFA save. We're making some pretty good progress. It's going to be a long road, but up the Wombles. God, I love AFC Wimbledon. Up the Wombles. Still Howway the lads. Oh, of uh, course. Newcastle by far number one. I rue the day that we that get drawn against them in the FA Cup. Like, well, because <laughs> It would be amazing if AFC Wimbledon made it to the Premier League, but there could certainly be a cup matchup at some point. Sure. Um, and that would be incredible. Well, incredibly, in the three spot, Xavier, I know this is strange territory for you making memories, but we do still have you left, and I wonder what it is that's making memories for you right now. Yeah, so we talked about it pre-pod, but shout out the Knicks being great. Specifically, I want to shout out... Uh, I want to shout out Josh Hart, the vibes man. I don't know if you've seen Josh Hart on Twitter, but he does whatever the heck he wants to do. And the ribbing between him and other Knicks players is phenomenal. So he missed the game a week ago, and Jalen Brunson was asked about the starters playing a little more minutes when Josh Hart was out. And he said, I'm just happy that Josh was out uh, laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Two days later... When Emmanuel Quickly and R.J. Barrett came back to Madison Square Garden, they got their tribute videos. Everyone was happy. Josh Hart said, now nah, I'm going to boo those guys. So everyone's cheering, and Josh Hart just, boo, boo. Quick-related tangent, great LSU-South Carolina women's basketball game the other day. Dawn Staley in the post-game conference, she was asked, like, oh, man, these fans really hate you. She's like, 
Ah, didn't you hear that? Call me Boo. <laughs> and then two days ago, Ryan Archie Diacono tweeted, confirming that Josh Hart is sitting behind me in the second row at the Nova game. Guess he doesn't have enough pull here at MSG, dot, dot, dot. And Hart responds, you stole my seats, Ryan. No one likes you. <laughs> hey, we like all the Diaconos. At Archie, kid. <laughs> Just yesterday, when the Knicks found out that Jalen Brunson was not a starter for the All-Star game on a tiebreaker, Josh Hart was asked if he saw that, and his response was, yeah, fucking loser. <laughs> Everybody needs a vibes guy. It's gotten to the point, like, Knicks beat writers have to, you know, be prepared for this. The Knicks writer for The Athletic uh, tweeted, Jalen Brunson dunked. I am certain that when we ask Josh Hart about it in an hour or so, he'll say it didn't count as a dunk. But I also saw it with my own eyes. Jalen Brunson dunked. The vibes are just great around this team right now. 11-2 and two since the OG Ananobi trade with the number one defense. OG Ananobi in 13 games. So no one has ever been more than plus 175 in the first 13 games of the new team. He's plus 239. Hell so yeah, over, over his first 13 games, when he is on the court, Knicks are 18 points better than the other team, which oh, yes. is absolutely insane. They probably do need another ball handler off the bench when Brunson's not there. But Deuce. I like Deuce, but I think, we, I think we, need, we need someone else just because the, the bench hasn't been as good, which makes sense because we got rid of one of the best bench players in the league. But the starting lineup has been literally the best in the entire NBA. So very happy about the Knicks. But I would be remiss if I didn't go back to what I've been updating everyone on for the past couple weeks. The Asian Cup and AFCON. Which would you like to start with, James? Palestine. 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 Yes, dear listeners. Palestine has advanced to the knockout stages for the first time ever. They are playing Qatar in three days on January 29th. And it is going to be a phenomenal game. I am extremely excited. If people don't know, Qatar is literally the biggest supporter of Palestine internationally. So the vibes will be immaculate at, the, at this game. We also have Saudi Arabia versus South Korea, which should be a, a phenomenal one. It's actually interesting because South Korea was beating Malaysia in stoppage time and they would have played Japan. And then they gave up a goal in the 15th minute of stoppage time to play Saudi Arabia instead of Japan. And the press had to ask South Korea's coach, who is ex-USA coach Jurgen Klinsmann, if he had them give up a goal on purpose to avoid Japan. He denies it, but Malaysia has, has not won a single Asian Cup game since 1980. So drawing and scoring three goals against South Korea is very um momentous. it's magical it, yes it's momentous for that country and suspicious to every single outside observer but the, the games are going to be so good we have australia versus indonesia iran versus syria uzbekistan versus thailand i'm extremely excited for how the asian cup's gonna go because at this point no one has looked that good except for iraq Iraq and Iran were the only two teams. Uh, oh, and Qatar. Those three teams, the only ones that went undefeated in the group stage. Or, or won all three in the group stage. And Iraq looked the best out of all of them. So, very interesting to see what happens with that. 
But now it's time to switch continents and go to AFCON. Another just phenomenal shit show. The Ivory Coast, the host, lost 4-0 in their last group stage game to Equatorial Guinea. It looked to all intents and purposes like they were out, so they fired their coach. Because of a 1-0 win by Morocco over Zambia in the last game of the group stage, Ivory Coast made it as the fourth out of six third-place teams, the absolute last spot, but they had no coach. So what did they do? They called France and asked, hey, can we borrow Hervé Renard for the knockout stages? And France said, you want to borrow our women's national team coach for a tournament that's going on now? And they said, yes. And France said, no, go fuck yourselves. I don't see a good reason not to say, yeah, sure. I think that's the least France can do for what Cote d'Ivoire yeah. has, you know, experienced from France in its history. I, yeah, come on. Get on the phone, Macron. Like, let's get this one figured out. This needs to be arranged. This is well, reparations. This is the start <laughs> of reparations. Well, they have uh, three days to see if they can figure something out before they play Senegal. Probably the best team in this tournament so far. Because, oh, we didn't talk about the fact that Tunisia, which was one of the three highest-ranked teams in Africa, failed to make it out of the group stage. Algeria failed to make it out of the group stage. Ghana failed to make it out of the group stage. That's three of the World Cup teams from Africa <laughs> out of the five that did not make it out of the group stages. Egypt barely made it out, like, on, on tiebreakers. And they were so, you know, worried and upset about their performance. Want to guess what the Egyptian FA did yesterday, James? They dug out a mummy, uh, read some cryptic texts from the Book of the Dead, and now, because there's no rule against it, a mummy is their new striker. Close. What they actually did was they ritually sacrificed a cow. That was closer <laughs> than I thought it would be. <laughs> to give them good luck in the tournament and then donated the cow meat to the homeless and hungry of Cairo. Yeah, yeah rich, sure. we're at the ritual cow sacrifice part of trying to bring good luck, but it's, it's very exciting what's going on in AFCON. We have a lot of interesting matchups. Local neighbors Angola and Namibia are facing off. Uh, we have Mauritania versus Cape Verde, Morocco, South Africa, I previously mentioned Senegal versus the Ivory Coast, Egypt versus uh, Congo, Equatorial Guinea versus regular Guinea, the Battle of the Guineas. It is. That's all of the pigs. <laughs> Winner gets to annex the other one and just make themselves the bigger Guinea. But it, I love AFCON. I love the Asian Cup. These have all been so phenomenal to watch. And I hope other people have been watching them too because it's, it's just so interesting. It's so fun. And I hope that the rest of the games are just as fun as the group stages have been. I, I've checked in a little bit, and it's been some delightful programming to have on in the background. But, listeners, speaking of programming, we are very pleased to let you know that we are back to our regularly scheduled programming this week. I know that it's been a little bit. December 18th is when we had our last discussion, but on that day... Diaz did win, and so as we kick off our new season here, Diaz, the world turns to you and asks, what kind of guys are we talking about this week? Well, I think you, you set it up perfectly. It was a very long off-season 
to ruminate on what we wanted to come up with for this week. There was a lot of options, and there was one from the past that came to me. We did an episode on sports we had never discussed previously, and we don't ever want to do repeats here, but I did like that kind of idea. I wanted to put just a little slight twist on it. So what we're going to talk about instead is exactly that. Guys from sports that have just a little twist on them. It's a little different. It's very familiar. You know the sport, but it's a different way of playing the sport. It's a different form of the sport. The albino of the sport, if you will. The albino works. I think that's a a good one. But when it comes to the, the core sport that I wanted to discuss, basketball, I had a couple different options to go with even within that. You could go netball, which I don't know if either of you have ever watched netball. I have no idea what the rules are to it as best as I can understand it. And from my eye, it looks like you're just not allowed to play defense. You can't dribble and you can't play defense. That's what it looks like to me. How similar is that to corfball? Corfball is like a little different. I think corfball, you can like play a little more defense. But netball, like you just straight up can't play defense, it looks like to me. That's a very ignorant thing to say. I'm sure there are very valid defensive mm-hmm. strategies within the sport of netball. But to my untrained American eye, it looks like you're just not allowed to play defense. You also have on kind of the opposite end of that spectrum entirely, you have slam ball. Slam ball is cool as shit. We fucking love guys on trampolines jumping up and smacking the shit out of each other and dunking some basketballs. That's a lot of fun. But I didn't want to go with something on either side of the spectrum. I wanted to go with something that, you know, kind of has that high-paced aspect of slam ball, but also doesn't involve many concussions. What I came up with instead is six-on-six basketball. Six on six. Now I've watched three on three since there are multiple Las Vegas aces that have won Olympic gold medals in three on three. I did not know there was six on six basketball. Is this Iowa women's basketball? This is Iowa women's basketball. Yes. But let's also be specific. It wasn't only played in Iowa. It was also played in New Jersey for a while. It was also played in Oklahoma. Six on six basketball is a very specific subsection of basketball. And James, the game would actually probably look pretty familiar to you anyway, because the rules essentially dictate that it is two separate games of three-on-three happening at a time. You have your forwards. They play in the front court. You have your guards. They play in the back court. Your forwards are trying to score. Your guards are guarding. Neither is allowed to cross half court. You can pass over half court, but that is essentially what we have. It's two separate 3v3 games happening at a time. This is incredible. I love this. Thank you, Roman Mars and 99% Invisible for doing an episode on this almost a year ago to this day. So I know what six on six basketball is. And I'm so excited for Diaz to tell more of it. it. I mean, it's just, it's fucking dope. Because the other thing that you have going on in the Iowa variant, at least, you have two dribbles max. So what this encourages is quick passing, a lot of movement. It's a very fast game. It's up and down. The average score you're going to see is in the hundreds. It's like just a typical game is going to get to the hundreds. And the other thing to appreciate about this is like this is the time before Title IX is where we're going, where if women's sports are, they're, they're not getting any extra help, let's say. They're going to have to just attract these predominantly male eyes on their own. And that's exactly what Iowa women's basketball becomes. 
The state tournament is sold out every year, up to 15,000 people crowding in for the, for the high school championship. Not only that, these champions were broadcast on regional television. And like, I wouldn't even just say like regional, like the interest wasn't only in Iowa. It would be broadcast to nine states surrounding Iowa. And the championship game would average 5 million viewers. For context, last year's national championship between Iowa and LSU was the most watched game in college women's basketball history with 9.9 million viewers. And that's while going to 41 extra states. And getting the bonus of having Iowa in it by the sound of this. Exactly. So I th- And that's, that was like another factor that drew me towards this is obviously women's basketball is again at the forefront of the Iowa consciousness as well as their silly caucuses that nobody understands how they work. But it's, it's an incredible sport. And, you know, it's so reflected by the attendance and by the legacy of some of the guys that played the sport. You have a lot of options to go with, but if there's any Iowa hoop head that you would have this conversation with, they're going to say there's no better game than the 1968 championship between Union Witten and Everly. There's also no better player than Union Witten's Denise Long. Denise Long? L-O-N-G? L-O-N-G. Denise Long. All right. Denise Long. She was born on some date in 1951. We don't know (laughs) which. It's not publicly available. We don't know the exact date. What we do know is that her life growing up is kind of just like the classic small town middle America growing up life. Her mom was the local postmaster. Everybody in town knows each other. Witten was a town of only about 150 to 200 people. But within Iowa, much like Indiana, basketball is a lifestyle. And for Denise, from the time she's 12 is when she really kind of starts taking a leg into the game. Uh, It's common practice to see her at the local playground, even in sub-zero temperatures, working on her set shot. She, She said for up to four hours a day. Ain't a lot of shit to do in a small town. Let's take this basketball and let's go to that hoop and let's just keep shooting. In this dedication to the craft, uh, she's really honoring a family tradition. Denise had two older sisters, Diane and Dana, and they were both the star player for Union Witten. But in their time, they would kind of get to the district final, not break through into the state tournament. And... Now she's carrying the family burden to an extent. My older sisters couldn't get through, but if I can break through, you know, we can show all of Iowa what Witten's made of. It's slim pickings, though, when she gets to high school, as far as putting together the team. There's only 34 people enrolled at the high school, period. <laughs> like, like, not in her class. You're saying the school. The school had 34 people. God damn. And then, I don't know the exact split, but if we were to cut that in half, that would mean that there would be roughly 17 girls who would be eligible to play for the basketball team. So she kind of takes it upon herself to recruit people within the school. Like, hey, like we need at least this many girls. We need at least six, obviously, to be able to play. She's able to recruit. Uh, she recruits her cousin, Sydney, to play. And at Union Witten. The, the Longs become a powerful duo. They establish themselves pretty early on. Denise is a forward. She's pretty tall. She's like about 5'10", 5'11". So at that height, with her four hours a day of practicing her set shot, 
she wants to get off her shot, she's going to get it off. And even from her freshman year, uh, she's already showing herself to be a very prolific scorer. Uh, she averages just over 30 a game in her freshman year. By her sophomore year, this jumps up to just over 50 points a game. God, I mean, when you only have a couple players, I guess yeah. someone's got to take the lion's share, but still. Right, yeah. She's scoring 50, and, like, the final score would be typical to see, like, 102 to 108. So, like, 50 still 50. You know what I mean? Of the so, three players that can score on each team. Right, yeah, of the I, three players that can score on each team, yeah. So, quick strategic question, kind of basing off that. You said the guards are in the backcourt and they're the defensive ones. Do you yes. find in this sport that, like, there are more, quote-unquote, tall guards just to try and, like take advantage of the natural defensive advantage of being bigger or is it still like classically yeah. you know your tiny people are having to guard your giant people no they would largely the strategy would be to have two taller girls uh who would be able to like you know block shots and then still have one quicker one who's able to run around and then typically they would be the one to take the two dribbles and get it to the front court who would score and then, I guess, kind of a similar thing you would see in the front court as well. You would have kind of one person who is your heliocentric scorer. And in typical offenses, this would be a person that would play close to the rim. But what's important to know about Denise Long's game is she was an outside shooter. And this is not the time when there was a three-point line. But she's basically the girls' basketball equivalent of Pistol Pete out here. I was like, going to say, pistol, the Pistol Pete of Iowa. <laughs> one could say she's firing from long range you could in fact say that like hear her talk about it like she's guessing that like her average shot she's probably pulling from 25 to 30 which is like well beyond the 22 feet that is a typical three-point arc so she had range for days and then especially at her size i mean like yeah she's gonna get a shot off from wherever goes up from 30 as a freshman to 50 as a sophomore she hasn't quite had that breakthrough to the state tournament yet they still haven't been able to get past the district final but her notoriety is already starting to grow. And by the time she gets to her junior year, if you thought going up from 30 to 50 was impressive, I'll give you 50 to 65 for her junior year. They do finally break through districts as well. And they're into the state tournament. Her small school of only 34, you could very easily draw the parallels here. This is the Hickory Hoosiers. This is the Milan Indigenous Peoples. This is the smallest school possible going mm -hmm. on a miracle run. This is a much better version of Hoosiers to me because you have a player that has had to go and like dirty dozen fucking recruit the team just to begin with. Exactly. Yeah. This is like, she, she pulled the team together and I mean, once Denise Long gets to the state tournament, she's, she's here to, to prove some shit. They roll through on into the final. And this is, one of the like one of my favorite things about the internet there's there's a lot of bad things about it there's a lot of lies that get spread there's a lot of propaganda there's a lot of misinformation it's really terrible but what you can do on the internet is you can go to youtube and you can search for the 1968 iowa girls basketball championship and you can watch this whole game in its entirety denise long and her union witten team are going against everly for her standards Denise Long has a little bit of a subpar game. She only puts up 64 in the state championship. Uh, she's actually outscored by Everly's Jeanette Olsen, who put up 76 in the game. So this might not bode well for Union Witten, but it's a team game. 
and before a sold out audience and with 3.5 million watching on TV in overtime, Union Witten pulls ahead and takes the state title 113 to 107. And you don't even have to like fake the ending. You get overtime already in the true sense. This is a better version of Hoosiers. It goes to overtime. And I mean, here's also the better part about the Denise Long Union Witten story. I don't know if you're paying attention. That was only junior year. We get a sequel. Mm. And I'm thrilled to tell you about the sequel because you thought 65 points per game was a lot. You might think it's pretty nice. In her senior season, first of all, three separate times she scores more than 100 points. Not <laughs> one, not two, three times she goes over 100. In part due to those huge games, her season average is a little higher than 65 this year. I've seen two sources on this number. There's one that says 68.4. And there's another that says 69.6. Therefore, I think it's our journalistic duty to combine these averages. Take the average. And and to declare definitively that in her senior season, Denise Long averaged 69.0 points per game. In her senior season, which Diaz, if I'm doing the math correct, you said last year was the 1968 state championship. And it is, in fact, the year in which the 1969 state championship will be played. Fucking great. This is by far our nicest story yet. And that's why it's so heartbreaking to me to have to inform you that Denise Long made it to the state tournament again. But her team did lose in the semifinals. And then they did lose the third place championship game. No, oh, I was going to be okay with the third place championship. Honestly, I was going to probably be even more thrilled that in 69, averaging 69 points per game, she claimed a third place championship. That's pretty brutal. You can't get the trifecta. Uh, we were really close. I really wanted that to be the case. Unfortunately, it wasn't. And that does bring an end to her high school career. And, you know, we mentioned in the lead up title nine, not really a thing at this point. And because of that, There's not a lot of collegiate basketball options for Denise Long. This is probably just going to be it. This is probably the end of her basketball career. But a certain man by the name of Franklin Miuli took notice of this girl playing basketball in Iowa and averaging 69 points per game for the 1969 season. Nice. Franklin Miuli was the owner of the San Francisco Warriors. They've just come over from Philadelphia They're having trouble establishing themselves in this market. They need a draw is basically what they need. And so in the 13th round of the 1969 NBA draft, the San Francisco Warriors select Denise Long. She was the first woman drafted into the NBA. She could not call herself an NBA draftee for very long, though, because the commissioner very quickly was like, whoa, 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 whoa. It does say in this rule book that women can't play basketball. We cannot airbud this rule. <laughs> we cannot airbud this. So they, they avoid the pick, but in terms of grabbing eyeballs and grabbing attention, it's already been a big success just by making the selection because now she's on kind of the national radar as far as basketball goes. And the summer of 69 is a pretty crazy year for a Denise Long because Play the Brian Adams song, James. <laughs> She's a guest on Johnny Carson, first of all. 
the other thing is like, look, Franklin Muley's like, okay, whatever, sure, you got me. She can't play in the NBA, but what she can do, she can still come to San Francisco. I can create a four-team women's basketball league that will play prior to my home games, and I will make her the star player of this league. I will pay her $5,000. I will give her a new Jaguar car to drive (laughs) in the color of purple, and I will cover her tuition at the University of San Francisco. So it's like, what if we turned Tykes on Ice into just a full league with real adult players? With real adult players, exactly. And, and the star attraction, Denise Long, who famously destroyed San Francisco Warrior Will Chamberlain's 100-point record. And, you know, Wilt was still in town at the time, so they, they, they did a little cross-promotion thing where she got to meet Wilt, and Wilt came up and said, are you the girl that broke my scoring record? And Denise Long's, like, really shy, like, just generally. So she, like, just very sheepishly is like, yes, but I didn't mean to. <laughs> So it's a, it's a crazy whirlwind summer. She had no plans of going, but eventually she was like, you know, this is one of those opportunities you just, you know, you got to take. You wanna, when you look back, you want to say that you did this. It was a pretty big culture shock for her going out to San Francisco after living in small town, 150 person Iowa. She's like all good with it now, but she has like said in interviews. Yeah, seeing like men kissing and women burning bras was like pretty fucking crazy for me at first. But... She's all good with it. She's not big. She's just like, she literally said, like, I didn't know they could do that. Culture shock. (laughs) Some people handle culture shock and, like, grow as humans from it. I can't think of a bigger culture shock intra-country than 60s Iowa to 70s San Francisco. Right. It's It's a pretty big swing. And, like, I think it is, like, almost innocent in the sense of her quote was, like, I didn't know they could do that. She's like, oh, shit. I guess. Didn't have a problem with it, just hadn't considered that possibility. Yeah, like, what? well, I guess they can. Okay, cool. And that's, she came to terms with all that, all good. What she didn't come to terms with was what was happening back in Iowa at this time. Denise Long moves out west. She's still this legend in Iowa. And there's a, there's a, there's a bar nearby where, like, everybody goes. And it's not like a strip club but there are like women dancing they're scantily clad women and there is one scantily clad woman who chose to make her stage name denise long (laughs) not even like a bad pun just the name straight up just the name straight up you know she was also a taller girl like she like looked up what her haircut was made it as similar as possible started making all kinds of money off of it it's kind of real fucked it is pretty fucked. And real Denise Long came back and heard about this and basically went up to her and was like, yo, what the fuck? Like, I'm Denise Long. Like, she, she went up to her at the place and was like, well, what's your real name? And like, she was like, Deborah or whatever. She's like, why are you using my name? It's like, well, I've been making a lot more money ever since. So, <laughs> which, understandable. But yeah, if there's some perverted 90-year-old Iowan out there listening to this, I'm sorry. I don't think you got a lap dance from Denise Long. After that year in San Francisco, she plays in the four-team league. She came back to Iowa. She settles in. She doesn't continue going to University of San Francisco, but she will eventually get her degree from Drake, and she becomes a pharmacist. She would marry twice. And while that was looking to be her last basketball experience, she did have one last basketball game in her. 
1979, there was a pro team that was playing in Iowa, and they were struggling with attendance figures. And Denise hadn't played basketball in forever. She said basically after San Francisco, it was like I spent four to six hours a day dedicating myself to this for like eight years. I'm good now. I've done all the basketball. I think I'm good on basketball. But she had an old friend who was coaching that Iowa team and called her up and said, like, look, if you can sign, you know, just come out, play for a minute, wave to the crowd. It'll be nice. Um, And she went back and forth on it, but she did decide to ultimately go. She logged in for one minute to a rousing ovation from a sold out crowd. She got fouled. She split the two free throws. So she did score one professional point. And then they subbed her out and she exited to another standing ovation and her professional career was finally complete. She's been living quietly basically ever since then, uh, away from the public eye, just, you know, being the pharmacist. But the honorifics have continued to come in. She was the fifth woman ever inducted into the Iowa Sports Hall of Fame. In 2019, it was the 50th anniversary of her drafting. And the Golden State Warriors invited her back to be honored by the crowd. She got to meet all the team before. You know, she met Steph. She met Clay. That was when KD was there. She didn't get punched by Draymond. It was a <laughs> great experience for her. But I think of all the honorifics that she ever received, the one that I would imagine would be the coolest to her. I mentioned you know, when she was a young girl, she would shoot for four hours a day at that playground park. She literally at one point brought a mattress out, just like, I'm going to shoot basketballs, I'm going to sleep, and then so that when I wake up, I'm right here and I can just start shooting basketball again. Um, Because ball is life. Ball is life, and in recognition of that, that is why that same park that she shot at as a child for four hours a day was renamed to Denise Long Park. Women's basketball obviously has an incredible legacy in Iowa, and we're seeing that most today through Caitlin Clark. It's incredible what she's doing. And she's captured the minds of really the entire country. And the biggest thing that you can say about her is like, she has the star power that transcends the gender gap. Like the gender gap still very unfortunately exists in the way that women's sports are covered. I feel she has transcended that and entered the common zeitgeist in a way that we really haven't seen in quite some time, at least in women's basketball. You might she's even making have to more go- money now for Iowa than she will for in the WNBA by eight times. Right, exactly. I mean, yeah, when you put it in figures like that, yeah, it's, it's, it, we have a long way to go. Caitlin Clark is, you know, hopefully shattering that ceiling for everybody else to pour through. You might need to go back for a girls basketball player, a women's basketball player to enter the national zeitgeist in the way that Caitlin Clark has to be a guest on the most popular late night show. You might have to go all the way back to perhaps our nicest nominee yet. Denise Long. Denise Long. Is this anything? No, it very easily can be (laughs) (laughs) a split decision. We'll have to revisit that. But no, I was a fucking great story. Honestly, start to finish fucking excellent. And not just because I'm scared to follow that, but because I don't think I can possibly, Xavier, put you in the three-hole two different times here in the show. I think I need to defer to you to bring up our next guy today. Well, thank you, James. 
I have an interesting one to talk about. Have either of you played racquetball before? I have played racket games. I've not played racquetball. I know there was one game we used to play in college where it was basically racquetball, but we just used our hands. Like handball? Kind of like that. Uh, it, it, had a, it had a name I don't feel comfortable saying. I think it was kind of bad. All right. Well, for any of our listeners who do not know what racquetball is, because as far as I can tell, we have never mentioned it on this show before. Racquetball is a racket sport that is usually played indoors in an enclosed court. There are some outdoor courts, but mostly it's an indoor sport. It was invented by Joseph Sobek, who was a professional tennis player who was looking for an indoor sport that he could play when he wasn't playing tennis. And he had tried squash, paddleball, handball, but was frustrated by the, the limitations in them. It wasn't enough like tennis uh, to him. So after a significant amount of experimentation, he realized that if you take a paddleball paddle, add strings to it, and then cut open a tennis ball and just use the rubber core, you can have a fast-paced game with a ball that's still easily able to control with your racket, and it's not too dangerous. He makes a handbook that combines the rules of handball, squash, tennis, and paddleball, distributes them to YMCAs and Jewish community centers all over America, and people love it. So how do you play racquetball? Like I said before, a racquetball court is fully enclosed, usually indoors, with a front wall. It is 20 feet wide, 40 feet long, and usually 20 feet high, because the ceiling is in play. There's a couple lines that delineate a service area and a serve reception area. Starting with the serve, whatever player's on serve has to bounce the ball on the floor once and then hit it at the front wall. It has to hit the front wall and then bounce behind the serve line on the ground or pass the receiving line in the air. And then once that happens, the return player can hit it. After the successful serve and return, players alternate hitting it against the front wall. But once the serve and turn has happened, you can hit it off of anything after it hits the front wall. You can bounce off the front wall, off the side wall, off the side wall again, off the ceiling, and you're essentially just trying to make it as hard as possible to return by doing all different types of shots that will ricochet in ways your opponent won't expect. If the server wins the rally, it's one point. If the, the server does not win the rally, the other player gets the serve but does not get a point. So only score on your own serve. For the longest time, matches were best of three with first two games to 15, third game to 11. A lot of the games we're going to talk about today, the period that I'll talk about, that was the scoring system. They have recently changed it in 2022 where it's a little bit more fast-paced. It's a best of five, but all games to 11 instead of 15. There's other types of rules, things called hinders, which are penalties and different types of team competitions where things get really wild because the space doesn't get bigger. You just add more people to the space. But those are the real basics to know. I like racquetball because growing up, my dad played racquetball a lot. It was one of his favorite sports after he was no longer able to consistently, consistently play baseball or softball, which is a thing that I watched my dad play for most of my early life. And... You know, I would see him go to the gym pretty much every day with his giant set of equipment. 
I will never forget when he would come back and talk about it. He would talk about how he was snatching people's souls. That that is how <laughs> that is what that is how he considered racquetball. He would snatch that sounds, souls. That sounds like a very Charles Perez turn of phrase. Yeah, for the for the people who know my dad, that's not surprising. And I actually talked to him today when I told him that I was going to talk about racquetball, and he was reminiscing about how much he, he, he loves it and told me that he considers it really a spiritual experience where once you're out in the court, because everything's so fast-paced and you're sweating so much, you, it's really like a zen feeling. So I love racquetball. I do not have the coordination to play racquetball because the ball just it moves too fast. I am thoroughly impressed with anyone who can play it, not just my dad, but big fan, and I wanted to give racquetball its due. So that brings me to my guy today. And my guy is Sudzy Monchik. I'm sorry, one more time with that? <laughs> Sudzy Monchik. You say that like it's a normal thing? It is normal, because Sudzy is from Staten Island, New York, where everything goes, and my proud place of birth. Sudzy was born October 12, 1974. His dad... Worked at like health clubs where older uh, men in the you know eighty like seventies and eighties were playing racquetball, and Sudsy from a young age showed a great interest in it. And he was Sudsy at this point. He has always been Sudsy. His parents say that they had decided he was going to be called Sudsy like in utero. So this is not like a nickname that came later in life. He he is just Sudsy, and a former world number one. Uh, Ruben Gonzalez, who trained at one of these clubs, saw a young Sudsy like practicing. Is like, all right, I I want to train this kid, dude. What it takes for a coach to just be like, I want to be this person's coach. I'm trying to think other examples of that. We've talked about a couple tennis ones here. The tennis dude who had uh, Agassi and sure. Celis both was like very much, oh, I want to be this person's coach. Right. Rackets, I guess, yeah, lends itself towards it. Ruben said that racquetball came too easy to Sudsy. At practice, he began asking uh, Sudsy if he was tired. And if Sudsy said yes, he had to pay Ruben a dollar. Sudsy would later say, quote, I realized the only way to keep my allowance was to keep saying no. And this built up stamina in Sudsy that was unmatched for any other junior racquetball player. It takes a special kind of abuse to get this kind of endurance. <laughs> Financial abuse. Yeah, and he went on to win every single title in every age division from the ages of 8 to 18 in both singles and doubles. So for 11 consecutive years, he won every single single and doubles title at the junior division. You might not be surprised to know that that's the only person in history to ever do that. During this time, he also wins the National High School Championship while competing for Tottenville High School in uh, South Staten Island, which was the rival high school to my mother's high school a couple years earlier, so no, no overlap there. But eventually, Sudsy wants to turn pro in racquetball. And at this time, racquetball is dominated by the uh, IRT, the International Racquetball Tour, this was founded in 1991 as a successor to a bunch of smaller tournaments, but there was no real showpiece event at this point for racquetball. But then in 1995, it gets added to the Pan American Games, 
And this is the first time that we have like an actual big international event that lets racquetball compete. And so Sudzi goes down to Mar del Plata, Argentina. And he wins the first ever doubles gold medal with his partner, Tim Sweeney, at the age of 20. So he is now a world champion at 20 after, again, just having won 11 years in a row of juniors titles. Xavier, I guess you could say Sudzi's cleaning up. Ooh, (laughs) but yes. (laughs) No, that's phenomenal. This kickstarts a massive period of dominance for Sudzi. During the 95-96 IRT season, Sudzi wins 6 out of 15 tournaments, which is the most of anyone. Then the next season, the IRT decides, okay, the demand is there, we have enough talented athletes, let's make our own showpiece tournament. So the U.S. Open is started. And Sudzi wins. Sudzi wins the first ever U.S. Open singles championship. He goes on to win this again in 98, 2000, and 2002, defeating a man named Cliff Swain all three times. Cliff Swain is someone that Racquetball Magazine had called, quote, the best of the best and was considered the greatest racquetball player of all time. And he got crushed by Sudzi. Sudzi also led the IRT in tournament wins in 96-97, 98-99, 99-2000, and 2000-2001. And was the year-end number one on the tour for five out of those six seasons from 95-96 to 2000-2001. The only time he wasn't was a year where he had a separated shoulder and couldn't play for half of the season. So if you even check Sudzi's, uh, Sudzi's website... He notes on his career, played blank number healthy seasons on the tour, <laughs> and then finished tour number one player blank number of times. But it's, it's very funny. Sud- Sudzi is an interesting character. So in 1999, the then 24-year-old Sudzi gets profiled in Sports Illustrated, rest in peace, SI. The headline was, Man Wielding a Dangerous Weapon, Sudzi Monchik Has Sliced and Diced His Way to the Top of His Sport. I want to read the intro paragraphs from this because it is the most born in the 70s Staten Island man I could ever imagine. Sudzi Monchik loves freedom, hates tyranny. We know this because his favorite film is Braveheart, the Oscar-winning kilt fest about 13th century Scottish freedom fighter Sir William Wallace. Quote, if I'd lived in Wallace's time, I would have been pillaging right at his side as the 20th century Staten Island racquetball player, quote, William Wallace was the man, exclamation point. Monchik preps for matches by watching Braveheart, parentheses, he travels with the video, has memorized long stretches of Braveheart dialogue, has even installed a Braveheart screensaver on his laptop, put up the computer and outspews Wallace's rousing pep talk before the Battle of Sterling Bridge, shut it down and you hear, quote, every man dies, not every man really lives. And I love the idea of this 24-year-old with a laptop in 1999 going to tournaments where he's kicking the ass of much older and more experienced players, and all they hear is him quoting Braveheart nonstop. And this is like, it took effort to get a Braveheart screensaver on your computer at this point. Yes, this is not easy. This is, again, 1999, but he went through this effort. The then-tour commissioner of the IRT, Hank Marcus, said, quote, Sudsy has great foot speed. He gets every ball that fails to roll out, but his hand speed makes him really excel. No one ever hit the ball consistently harder. 
like I said before, I could not play racquetball because I do not have the hand eye coordination for how fast the ball goes. Sudsy's average forehand and backhand were clocked at over 180 miles per hour. Ah. It's only like twice as fast as the league average fastball. <laughs> and again, remember how long the court is. 40 yards. Uh, 40 feet, sorry. Scales, not, 40, not 40 yards. 40 oh, feet. Oh, no, it doesn't scale. That's, That's a much bigger difference. Yes, my apologies. <laughs> 40 feet. So when you're hitting something 180 miles per hour off of a wall 40 feet in front of you, and it can ricochet off your multiple walls, if you do not have incredible tracking, you will not even have the time to process to swing your racket before the ball is past you. And Sudsy is hitting it 180 miles an hour, diving all over the court, making shots that no one else can make. He's just crushing these people. At the time of the 1999 SI article... Sudsy and Cliff Swain had met in singles finals of nine tournaments that year. Sudsy had won eight of them, including the last seven in a row. Uh, in two of them, he blanked Swain, not allowing him a single point in the game. Quote, Cliff is still pounding everyone else. Everyone else but me. He just turned 33. Don't think I don't count the years. And Cliff's response was that, that he still considered himself equal to Sudsy and was just a little unlucky. So Sudsy said... If that's what Cliff thinks, fine. What else can he say? He's constantly getting pounded by a guy who hits the ball at Mach 5. I feel his pain. But you know why the Yankees creamed the Padres in last year's World Series? They were better. I love this cocky-ass 24-year-old Staten Islander who I am picturing speaking just like Paul Vetrano with a William Wallace accent. Being the greatest racquetball player is probably the most Staten Island thing ever, which is why he does get inducted into the Staten Island Hall of Fame in 2008. So you knew that had to be coming. The years don't catch up to Sudsy, but injuries do. Unfortunately, he ends up with a degenerative back condition like that is early onset in his late 20s, and he has to retire at 2006. So very early. A lot of the players he were playing against we're playing well into their late 30s, early 40s. But Sudsy, by the age of 31, just can't move as much anymore because of his back and because of a bunch of leg injuries as well. So he retires. And like I said, he gets inducted into the Staten Island Hall of Fame. Then his first year of eligibility, he gets inducted into the Racquetball Hall of Fame, which was in 2015. Uh, Larry Hammerly, the president of USA Racquetball, said that Sudzy Monchik is quite simply one of the best players racquetball has ever seen. His many accomplishments on the court make him an obvious choice for the Hall of Fame. But, you know, when you're as committed to the game as Sudzy is, even if you can't play it, you can't stay away. So Sudzy starts commentating, and he is the commentator on multiple U.S. Opens and other tournaments. And then... Does he call anybody a jabroni while being the commentator? Uh, I've all, I only watched a couple different tournaments, so I, can't, I cannot say for sure if he did or did not. It is possible. It is possible. But then he gets approached about coaching. And Sudzy becomes the coach of the youth and senior national teams for... I want, I want you to just guess a country, and I want, I want to see how close you both get. Um, can you give us the continent? South America. Ooh, um, Brazil. 
Let's take a stab with Brazil. Diaz, you have a guess? Guyana. Uh, I, I'm not going to say either are close, but because <laughs> there's only there's not that many countries in in South America. But the answer is Ecuador. Sudzi oh, becomes wow. the national team coach for Ecuador because his wife was the number one women's player in Ecuador at the time. <laughs> so they just no, asked I'm, Sudzi to get to coach them. I'm mad that you gave us the continent because if you didn't, I was going to guess Equatorial Guinea and I would have claimed technicality correct. So <laughs> the words are close enough. <laughs> so under Sudzi's leadership, Ecuador, which is not a traditionally strong racquetball country, has some really good finishes. At the 2015 Pan American Games, they win three different bronze medals. At the 2016 World Racquetball Championships, they finished fifth out of 20 teams behind traditional powers like the USA, Canada, and Mexico. And after these games, Sudsy does retire, from again, from coaching, saying, you know, he, he had personal reasons and just was tired of coaching. But just like Dara Torres, he had more shit to prove. At the age of 43, Sudsy comes out of professional retirement to represent his country, the U.S., at the 2018 World Championships in San Jose, Costa Rica. Participating in the doubles competition, Sudsy and partner Rocky Carlson swept the group stage 3-0. They had 90 points scored against only 26. They then beat South Korea in the round of 16, Colombia in the quarterfinals, and Canada, who had the best player in the world, Kane Waldachuk, in the semis to make the championship match against the number one seed, Mexico. Uh, for context, by the 2018-2019 IRT season, four of the top six players in the men's rankings were Mexican, including the two that they were facing off against. Mexico is really, really good at racquetball now. They've been dominating for the past, like, six, seven years. Sudzi and Rocky win the first game. But unfortunately, they don't have the same stamina as the Mexican team, who one of the players was 20 years younger than Sudzi. So they just, after a hard-fought second game, they just fall off and they don't have it in them in the third game. But it was still a very impressive silver for Sudzi, who, again, was 43 years old, had not competed at the international level in 12 years, and had never won a World Racquetball Championship medal of any kind. What what did they did they do anything about his back during this time? Like, did they give him like a shot? He just kind of like I'm Sudzi out here. I, I can do it for like a week or two. I think he was just I'm Sudzi out here because he did try to come back again for the next World Championship with a different partner, and they won a USA qualifying event. But right before the full like selection for who was going to represent the USA at the 2021 event. He did have to pull out due to injury. At this point, he was 45. So it just he just doesn't have the mobility to play long stretches, which is why he just really couldn't play at the high level for tournaments where you have to do multiple games and play for hours and hours and hours on end for weeks. If you can't move in racquetball, you can't really play. And he kind of just used his technical ability and his you know, IQ of knowing where a shot is most likely able to go to make up for that. But with the, you know, combined advanced age and degenerative back uh, condition, that was pretty much it. 
But, you know, I just... First of all, I just love the Staten Island man decided to become really, really good at one random thing and getting into both the Staten Island Hall of Fame and the That Sport Hall of Fame. I love the fact that he's like, all right, I guess I'll get into coaching because this attractive woman said, hey, will you coach me? And then married her and then just helped her entire country win multiple medals. I love the 40-something-year-old being like, I got one more in me. Send me to the world championships. I'll beat all these young whippersnappers. And then almost doing that, but still getting his first ever world championships medal. And then I, I just love, he still actively posts like videos and does like coaching clinics. I watched him do drop shots from a video he posted four days ago. It just even the thing I said earlier about played seven healthy seasons on tour, finished five time number one player in the world on his own website. Like, that is a level of Staten Island, Petty. Like, no, only count the seven seasons I was healthy. It makes it look so much better. Don't count, like, the other five where I could not move. Yeah, although even five out of, like, 12 would have still been the best ever at that time. The man who was born to play racquetball, Sudzy, absolutely love, and I think he is one hell of a guy. He's named Sudsy. Like, he you, named Sudsy. in some ways, you could have left it that he's just named Sudsy. Uh, name I thought you would love. I thought you would love his name, James. Very much so. He is a guy. He's a guy. There's two guys now, but there is a third that we must start with. And Diaz, I appreciate you earlier mentioning how we had this long off season because that is kind of what begat the form of sport I want to talk about: cycling which is the largest sport. It is in many ways a year-round sport. We just recently wrapped up the Santos Tour Down Under in Australia, but that's Southern Hemisphere. When we're talking about the off-season, it's very dependent on the geography of the cyclists. And today we're going to be concerned with the heartland of cycling in continental Europe, which is kind of the troika of France, Belgium, and the Netherlands. And this is where the winter off-season of the Northern Hemisphere Many, many years ago, it gave birth to a new, more psychotic form of cycling at the turn of the 20th century, and where then seven decades later, one of its all-time practitioners would be born. I will talk about the sport later, but first I want to introduce you to the guy today, Sven Nice. That is spelled N-Y-S, Sven Nice. It is a Dutch name. Sven, he's born in Bonheiden in northern Belgium. Belgium does not have a national language. Uh, when he's born on June 17th, 1976 to parents Vera and Francois, it is in the northern part of Belgium, the Flemish region. Belgium's like a Venn diagram between the Netherlands and the French. And they speak French in the bottom, they speak Dutch at the top. It there's is, some German. There's some German there's in Belgium. There's a little bit of German. There's a little bit of German, but it is a kind of like visual Venn diagram if you look at how the counties are born in. And that is a little bit of like a national identity crisis at times for Belgium. And that's something that we will return to later. But throughout the entire region, there's a deep and abiding love of cycling. And a uh, specific form of cycling in the 1980s is sweeping the continent. If you all remember when we talked about Matt with 1T Hoffman, the 1970s was when BMX takes off in the US. And by this time, it has made it to continental Europe. And so by the age of five, Nice is right in the thick of the European scene. Francois and Vera are transporting him like all throughout the country and then all throughout the continent. He's very, very good. He's competing at the highest level for his age for just about 10 years altogether. But as we get into the 90s, 
Europe is falling now a little bit out of love with BMX, and as is nice. So he turns his attention to a new pursuit, cyclocross. Quick plug, uh, if you want to hear like more about cyclocross after I do it, uh, Michael Bauman has been doing a newsletter, Wheelie Sports, really great. Just talked about cyclocross this week. But cyclocross is basically cycling with an obstacle course. Apocryphally, it originated in this area of Northwest Europe about 100 years ago. And that is when cyclists would race town to town and take shortcuts through like the fields, over fences, through farms. And it would sometimes be called steeplechase because like the landmark that you had for the next town was the steeple of the church. And you could just see that and race in a straight line there going through whatever you had to go through. Now, whether that is a true origin, by the early 1900s, it is now getting organized. It's taking form. And it is, like I said, kind of race obstacle course hybrid. There's some differences. It is always a much, much shorter course. It's a circuit where we're doing laps and it, it is in really nasty conditions but still largely with the same bikes. It is a road race bike that you are using, much like you see in the tour, with a couple of small modifiers. One is that you've got bigger forks because you need bigger tires. And you need not be tires because you're going through all kinds of terrain. But the other one, this is very like inside baseball one, the brake lines, instead of running under the tube, run on top of the tube. And the reason that's important, I can tell you as a biker, when you're carrying your bike through portage, you want to have like that little corner by the seat over your shoulder. Normal brake lines have cords and screws there, and it's not entirely comfortable to do for long periods of time. But in cyclocross, very often, you have to hop off your bike and carry it as you go through extra sand pits, mud pits, hopping over different like barriers that they've put through the course. And so you've got that brake line. You also do not have silly clippy shoes. You've got normal shoes because you have to be able to hop on and off, on and off, and be running with it sometimes. So like you need better bike handling abilities to go through these different conditions. It's kind of like resistance training and it was made to be this off-season way to stay in shape in the winter. First ever national championship, it's France in 1902. Belgium has their first in 1910 and it's international by 1924 when we have our first international competition in Paris. We've got the Union Cycliste Internationale who have taken it over since the 40s and they're just running a bunch of different contests while it's been big for a while. It's really exploding at this time, and it had a bit of a renaissance because of BMX. In 1989, Nace was watching a pretty local rider for him, Danny DeBee, and he wins the UCI World Championship because of a very specific racing style that really appeals to Nace. And so in 1991, he goes to this nearby town called Pitham, He's 15 years old. It's his very first race. He is a newveling, which is a newcomer. Places seventh in his very first race. Very, very respectable. And it's because of this skill that both he and Debi are very, very good at because of their BMX background. And that's bunny hopping. A lot of the time, Nace just doesn't get off his bike for obstacles. He just bunny hops not with a BMX bike, with a full road race bike, just hopping over these like couple foot tall wooden barriers that are there in the road for him. It's fucking insane. And it takes him a while to like pair this natural skill with the necessary uptake in endurance. But once he does, he absolutely flourishes. By the late 90s, he is one of the sports like bright young stars alongside another fellow Belgian, Bart Wellens. He's going to win the U23 chip in 97. 98, he is like consistently one of the youngest racers on all of the international tours. His first race with Belgium was in 93 in the world tour. 
And once he graduates from the U23 ranking to the elite tier, time for him to join a team. And he goes with the Dutch team, Rabobank. How do you spell that? Rabobank is R-A-B-O-B-A-N-K. And like we talked about before when I've talked about cycling, that like the cycling teams are super corporate, even more so than like NPB teams with baseball, where they're all named after the companies. Like these are not just named after the companies. The companies are constantly changing. Sponsors are constantly changing. This is actually the same like organization that is now the Visma team, which if you know anything about like modern road cycling, they won all three grand tours last year. Huge deal. Uh, They've won a couple straight Tour de France's now with Jonas Vingegaard. And they're still Rabobank here at the Millennium. They're also not huge on the road cycling at this time, but they're a cyclocross powerhouse. And that's largely due to star Richard Gronendal. His name might sound extra Dutch because he is like the only Dutchman at this time amongst this huge group of Belgians. So got a little extra mustard on it. Uh, I'm not going to spell that one because it's very long. Just know that. (laughs) Uh, He's been with this team since they became the main sponsor in 96. and. This is when I want to take a quick moment to talk about like the four competitions we care about here with Cyclocross, specifically for our boy Sven Nace. The main team thing is the UCI World Cup. It's a season-long points ranking, like NASCAR Cup or like Premier League standings, whatever you want to call it. That's the number one thing that the teams are trying to do. And then there's three other ones that are a little bit more about like individual rider competitions. One is the Belgian national champion. Sven cares very, very much about that. One of them is the Super Prestige. It's a smaller circuit, just eight races, and it's only for Belgium and Dutch people. It's kind of like a parallel to the World Cup. Very, very important to him as well. But the most important is the UCI World Championship. That is a one-day race. And like, yeah, the World Cup's a big deal. The World Championship is like, this is the winner who gets to wear, as in road cycling, the rainbow jersey, the full season, the next season. All in all, that's the dude right now. When Nace comes onto this team, he's the clear number two to Groenendal. But number two still gets a lot of shine. He does win the Super Prestige his first two years on the circuit. He has already won a couple Belgian national championships. He also wins in his new hometown of Baal now. He wins the first ever Grand Prix Sven Nace. There is already a race named after him at this point as he makes his debut on the pro circuit. And he does win the first one ever at the age of 23, beating Groenendal. James, apologies if I missed this, but how long are these races in temporal? Oh, oh, you absolutely, I did not say. So we've got the circuit, we've got the laps. You're looking at somewhere in the range of like three hours most of the time. And sometimes it's like a set number of laps. There are sometimes there's like, Lamant, how many laps can you get in three hours? That does vary race to race. It is much shorter than normal races, and it's just many, many laps of this same circuit going over it all the time. The idea is like it's a much better viewing experience in a lot of ways because you can see a lot of the course as you do it through this day. I've uh, I've gone to see my uncle who like he's who introduced me to cyclocross when I was younger, and you spend the first couple laps here at one pit, and then you'll spend another couple laps at a different obstacle, and you just walk around the whole day. It's fun. Got it. I was I just wasn't sure if this was like an all day no, no. thing or it's it's an all day party. It's not an all day race. The UCI World Championship, that is one of the ones that is for country, not team. And while Nice at this point has had a first in the UCI World Cup season standings and has had his national title, he is, like I said, the number two on this team. And that's going to rear its ugly head in an important spot here. 
Rob Obank makes it clear to Sven ahead of this race, do not beat Richard Grainendahl. And so Grainendahl pulls away really early in this. And Nace does not help a couple fellow Belgians, Mario de Klerk, along with others. He does not help them catch him. And so Sven catches a lot of shit back home. Like he's even getting an inquiry from the Royal Belgian Cycling League about, hey, what the fuck, man? Like you can't act this way. You cannot fuck your fellow countrymen over. And he's able to satisfy some people with explanation. He explains, hey, my boss has forced me into this, essentially. But there is now some slow cooking beef in the background. He loses a lot of the next season to injuries, does still win the Sven Nace Grand Prix, because it's always held on like January 1st or very, very close. Unfortunately, he's unable to make the rest of the competitions, but he comes back strong. He wins another two super prestigious. He's up to his fourth by the end of 2003. Keeps falling short in the world championship, though. And at this point, the top of the ladder, it's like it's him, Grainendahl, and then everyone else is just another Belgian. Wellens, de Klerk, Tom Van Oppen, Wesley van der Linden. These other Belgians. Remember what Sven did back in 2000 when he helped Grainendahl. This time, there is a coordinated effort at the very end of the world championship to sprint past him just enough to knock him down to second place behind Grainendahl. And Nace is incensed by this. This is a transcribed quote translated from the original Dutch. This is war. Thanks, Van Oppen. Thanks, Van der Linden. This is the last thing I have done for the Belgian team. They can all go up in the tree. Up in the tree is a common idiom in Dutch for go to hell. I'm glad you made that clarification because if an American said that, I might have... Yeah, it's not uh, a lynching thing. Not a lynching thing. Just a, just a nice casual go to hell. <clears throat> and I will say this is a big difference because this was a national competition, not a team competition. So like these guys are not on the same team as Doll. They specifically pull Nace back behind Grainendahl. Like, they're not winning for themselves. They know they can't win for themselves. They can just keep him from winning. And this leads to the birth of a new Sven. Because at this point, he's been a pretty reserved guy. Even in that quote, he was, like, described as a normally reserved Sven. But he was described in that moment as being frenzied with anger. And he is now, thanks to his hometown making this nickname possible, De Cannibal Van Ball, the Cannibal of Ball. I don't like that name. No? Well, he's going to eat his fellow countrymen. That's really what it is. He's going to devour his fellow countrymen over the next two years. It's like legitimately probably the two most dominant seasons in cyclocross history. In that 2004-2005 season, the first one, Belgian national champ, first overall in the Super Prestige, first overall in the World Cup, and finally, I'll be in a very close finish with like five other Belgians in the top six, or sorry, four other Belgians to make five total in the top six. Sven does consume them all as he wins his first world championship this year. And he does nearly the exact same next year. Does fall on the very last lap of the championship. I will point out again, these are typically in absolutely terrible conditions, particularly in the last lap as everyone's been tearing up the course for however many hours, but still had every other win short of that world championship. And part of What's starting to happen now is the cycling world is starting to react to the fact that they can't stop Sven if he's just going to jump over everything. Now, there's not a rule change that he's responsible for, per se, but they do notice that there start to be a lot more double barrier setups in a lot of these obstacles. 
the kind that would make it, I don't know, very, very difficult to just jump over one and make you actually have to get off your bike for two of them. They are not allowed to have more than two in a row, but people notice that there are a lot more double barriers around this time. And between these changes to the game, between him just getting a little bit older, through the end of 2008, it is starting to catch up with him. Gets a fifth national championship. He finishes first in the World Cup standings a fifth time. The other Belgians get a couple last wins. But what's more concerning is his rivals in a way. They've kind of fallen to the wayside. But 32-year-old Nace is now no longer surrounded by them. He's surrounded by younger folks. He's surrounded by guys like 22-year-old Lars Boom, world champion that year. Or uh, Zdenek Stybar, also 22 at this time. Nace says Stybar is the single greatest rival he's ever raced against. And this leads to some changes for Sven. First off, he's going to change teams. He joins Landbaukredik Tunsteiner uh, as the oldest member of the team. He is still very great, but all of these guys are out here, not to mention another Belgian rival, Niels Albert, who like very poetically is born in the exact same town as Sven just 10 years later. Those are the big three now, Albert, Stybar, and Bohm. And Nice kind of settles into this elder statesman role. I will also take two seconds to mention he's also very good at mountain biking at this time and does make the uh, Olympics twice, 2008 and 2012. Never medals there, but makes the Olympics twice as a mountain biker and is also the five-time Belgian national champion. Now, we've seen it before with like the greats who are a little bit past their prime when they start hitting the career milestones. Just naturally, that's where you're going to be as you start hitting the big numbers. He gets his 300th win in 2010, and he's still stacking super prestige and national titles. But with his age climbing, with this new generation, there's still one thing he wants more than anything. And that's another world championship. And an excellent opportunity presents itself. Cyclocross, as I had mentioned, is very international in Europe already by the 20s. It reaches the States not really until the 60s. And even then, they only keep up for a little bit. The last one before a long hiatus being in 1969. Nice. And then no more for like another half decade. It starts to build up steam again, and finally by 2013, UCI is ready to have the first ever world championship outside of Europe. They're going to take it to America, to Louisville, Kentucky. And then it rains the whole week before this race. They That's what you having- get for going to Kentucky. <laughs> well, what they end up having to do is they have to move all of the races to a single day. And so this course is going to get fucking destroyed like there it is exclusively going to be mud if you look at the pictures from this race everyone just has the line of mud that you get from being near other people's wheels spitting it out at you in a straight line for an entire time it's insane but like nace is cyclocross when he comes here he is the face of the sport and this is the sport trying to really put forward a strong first foot here in america and by god if Sven Nace doesn't pick the perfect time to win his second ever world championship. Just absolutely dominating in this one too. It is not as close as that 2005 win was. And like, as far as he's concerned, this is the moment that Sven Nace, de Cannibal van Baal, completes his career. He does race for a few more seasons before officially retiring in March of 2016. But like that 2013 world championship, that's his crowning moment. That's his pride and glory. Nine-time Belgian champ, 13-time Super Prestige winner, six-time UCI World Cup first overall finisher, two-time Olympian, 12-time winner of the Grand Prix Sven Nace. We love people playing 
in stadiums named after him. He's won a competition named after him 12 fucking times and finished on the podium like another five. That's pretty good. He has been supplanted at this point by a new generation. Uh, there's another Belgian, Wout van Aert, nowadays. There's also this Dutchman, Matthew van der Poel. But, like, they're greats in cyclocross, don't get me wrong. They are really amazing road cyclists who do this in the offseason. They are not cyclocross racers first and foremost. Like, Sven Nace is one of the last to, like, really exclusively do that at the top, top, top of the level. So there's fewer and fewer specialists, but there's one more that I want to mention to close this out. In October of 23, young racer, it's his first year on the tour. He's already drawing comps to Van Aert and Van Der Poel, being on this tour at a very, very young age. That's really why he's drawing the comps. He fucking annihilates the field at a competition at Waterloo. Not the Belgian Waterloo. Waterloo, Wisconsin. But still, a very nice moment there. And it's a particularly nice moment when this Belgian crosses the finish line, this member of the Trek team. He's just won it by 16 seconds. He's captured his first ever pro win in his first year on the tour. He just falls into the arms of his trainer, his team leader, and father. And Thibaut Nace and Sven Nace celebrate this first pro win together. He's got a bright future ahead of him. And Sven Nace is literally in charge of the team. So it's not like he's going to lose his spot on it anytime soon, even if he weren't already good enough to be winning it. I just love that that legacy will continue on, but that should not take away from the legacy that already exists for De Cannibal van Ball and my youngin, which is Dutch for guy, Sven Nace. I'm glad that he is a non-nepotistic, successful sports father. Like, this isn't a Doc and Austin Rivers thing. This is like, <laughs> this is legit. You know, we're approaching LeBron James and LeBron James Jr. We'll see how this goes. If Thibaut Nace did not have the last name Nace, he would still be on the tour right now. Maybe he wouldn't get as many write-ups. I'll acknowledge that. He's getting a lot of press attention for someone that just won their first. Sure. Again, very young, like winning even one on the tour at this age. Pretty impressive. And I'm glad that we, you know, were able to talk about this just a couple months after that happened so that it can be the coda of it. But that is the coda and the end of my story for Sven Nace. And that means that it is the beginning of our discussion as to which one of these three is making it in. I wish Belgian names were easier to say because I've forgotten 90% of the names other than Sven Nice because they're just too hard to pronounce. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Or maybe Sven just ate them all, so that's why I can't remember their names. Yeah, exactly. He has consumed their souls, their memories, everything. The cannibal does not leave anything untouched on his plate. Speaking of souls, I do appreciate... Stealing souls, which is what happens when you play racquetball, according to my father, who is the foremost expert on me watching him play racquetball and knowing how he feels when he did it. And I do love Sudzy Monchik, the most Staten Island, Staten Island man and most racquetball guy ever. Like between the two of yours, it's tough because... Sudsy would be a good nickname, but it's just a straight up name, which is awesome. But then we have perhaps the best nickname yet brought up on the show with the Cannibal Van Ball. I think that might be the best. Like if you brought this up on nicknames episode, I would have been like, as no soon question. as I heard, like I, I'd be like, okay, like, and I'm Diaz and you know, we can sign off right now because that's the end of the episode. <laughs> you won. I, I will say to Sudsy, 
one thing real quick about racquetball, I have always believed and, and is, you know, I think generally believed by people who follow a lot of sports, hitting a major league pitch is like the hardest thing to do in sports. It might actually be playing racquetball now if we're that much faster. And I am also interested that Sudsy paid out some amount of money to his coach for saying he was tired sometimes. We don't know what the amount is, but like some amount of money was paid for his endurance. I like that there is a dollar value on what he did to gain his endurance throughout his sport. But I think Sudsy's a little bit too much of a Mel Gibson fan for me, if we're being totally frank. See, that was the one thing I was thinking of. Uh, I think I said it in our chat before, uh, like a couple of days ago, that you're either going to love it or hate it. But I could not avoid bringing up the Braveheart thing because it just reminded me so much of my own dad. Oh, it's and loving Bra- good touch. I was like, this... If my dad was the white one from Staten Island and not my mom, my dad would be Sudsy Monchik. It is like if you just combined my parents together with my mom's hometown and upbringing and ethnicity and my dad's love racquetball, they are the same person. I, I feel like we're forgetting how many 69s were in the story of Denise Long. I also it's think a lot of 69. It's a lot of 69s. And I think it's the most interesting alternate form of the sport. And I know that's not the guy specifically, but that is very important to this category. I'm going to be honest. I, I think I'm pretty firmly in the camp of Denise Long altogether. I mean, I also love Denise Long. And I do think, because I mean, the, 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 there's also, it's not only the 69s, then we also have like, oh, who was the first woman drafted into the NBA? Denise Long, who has the most 100-point games in high school basketball history. Denise Long. And you saw who, my reaction when I said, are you about to talk about Iowa women's six-on-six basketball? Like, I had been a fan of this, and I had known about Denise Long for a little over a year, and I love it. And... If it would make you both listen to that 99% Invisible episode, I would make this unanimous. I, I personally am going to be driving four and then two backs. I'm driving six hours total tomorrow, so I have plenty of time. So time in exchange for your vote, Xavier, this is how democracy really works. They think it's just about... The <laughs> it's, about it's about quid pro quos <laughs> and bribery. So in exchange for your vote, Xavier, I will listen to that episode on the condition that you texted to me after the show. I put it in the uh, chat in Discord. Beautiful. Even better. Um, that done, the only thing left is honors, Diaz. Yeah, the only thing left is honors. And it's only fitting because Denise Long, her, her playing career has been done for a while, but she's kept piling up those honorifics. As we mentioned, the fifth woman elected into the Iowa Sports Hall of Fame. She was the star attraction of the pregame show for the San Francisco Warriors uh, in the 1969 season. Obviously, that one's certainly right up there for it. But to also be called back out by the team 50 years later, to be on the Johnny Carson show, she was really a star of her time. But stars can fade somewhat as we get older. But that's kind of what this Hall of Guy is about. We're about reigniting those stars. And we're about putting those stars up in bright, glittering lights so it is our great honor to welcome into the Hall of Guy, three-time 100-point scorer, senior year 69-point averager, Denise Long, who it's also terrifying to think if they had a three-point line, like she would have averaged 100. 
If we just say if if every shot that she took in her 69 point average season was instead of three, that would have been like a 110 point average. It's nuts. It's nuts. Uh, it would be nuts to not welcome her into our hall. So that's exactly what we're going to do, folks. Welcome Denise Long to the Hall of Guy. Welcome indeed. Stars may fade, but memories never do. And that is what we are concerned with here. We are so glad to have been able to bring that to you again. We are very thankful to the people that help us bring that to you, our producer Craig and all the coders behind him, as well as our musical director Don Ham for that lovely theme music. But most of all, we are thankful for you joining us, dear listener. And we've got several more guys ahead of us now as we head into further uncharted territory. If you want to keep up with not only those, but the guys of the day, you can find everything for the Discord, Blue Sky, all that good stuff at bit.ly slash remember that guy, all one word, all lowercase. I'm going to be at the fucking AFC championship game this weekend. That's pretty rad. And hopefully I will survive it because I'll be honest. If they don't win, I'm just going to keep, we're at row 24 already in the upper deck. I'm just going to go like another 10 rows back because there are only nine rows. Hopefully it won't come to that and I can come back. But until then, I will be one of your hosts, James. I have been one of your hosts, James. (laughs) I've been the very special guest, Xavier. It's a good thing birds can fly, James. I've been Diaz, and as Wimbledon FC legend Vinny Jones once said of the crazy gang, you either grew a backbone quickly or dissolved as a guy. I am kind of pissed, though, that the tiebreaker for all-star voting was the fan vote when it already counts double everything else. That is kind of just... I was like, all right, if the fan voting is 50% and the media voting is 25% and the player voting is 25%, you're already double counting the fan vote. If it's tied after that, there should be some other tiebreaker because... Well, the the tiebreaker should be the non-fan vote. Like... (laughs) I, that that would make more sense. Yeah. That would make tie, more sense. Tie to goes me. to the experts. Like, this not, is why we need to abolish the electoral college. Because exactly. I mean, I mean, I love Dame. These maniacs elect people like Zaza Pachulia, like Medicore. <laughs>